right, everyone, welcome. This is Christy Balsells. I'm the Executive Director of MitoAction, and it is Friday, September 4th, 2009. We're glad to have all of you joining us today, and particularly glad to welcome Dr. Alex Flores, who's joining us from Tufts Floating Hospital for Children in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome, Dr. Flores. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. It's indeed a pleasure to be with you this uh, afternoon. We're talking about a very important topic today that I feel has sometimes been swept under the rug, and it is our effort to try to bring the topic out into the open to address what's happening, and that is accusations of Munchausen by proxy in the population of children with mitochondrial disease. Many of you may know that Dr. Flores serves on the MitoAction Medical Advisory Board, but he, his day job is that he's the Chief of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition at Tufts Medical Center's Floating Hospital for Children. So he's very experienced with the concept of pediatric dysmotility. And we'll focus today on that population. It so happens that uh, in looking at these populations of kids with mitochondrial disease, the children with intestinal failure often are the most confusing and may be more subject to these types of um, accusations. So, um, Dr. Flores, we're going to just talk for a bit, and then we'll open the floor for questions. So uh, thank you so much for joining us and for um, being willing to address the challenge, and we are all excited to be able to talk with you. So I'll, I'll hand it over to you to talk a little bit more about the topic. Thank you very much, Christy. So this is uh, always a, a difficult problem, you know, and it's not very much uh, approach, you know, for physicians um, because, as uh, Christy put it, you know, they put it under the carpet there. But uh, if you see the outline, I'm going to talk briefly in terms of uh, background and some definition, then uh, perhaps talk about some of the diagnostic and management possibilities and also try to bring that to light of the mitochondrial disorders. So uh, people has been using the term of uh, Munchausen by proxy or also called factitious disorder by proxy. Uh, the spectrum of the disease, including people who have conditions that uh, indeed exist, but the pa patients or the, or the parents of the patients might have over compliance regarding that and so always is involved the patient who has a medical issue then there's a perpetrator who might be involved in doing um, the Munchausen or the factitious disorder and the physicians on that. The definition for intestinal failure is when patients have the inability to maintain protein, energy, fluid or electrolytes, micronutrients due to gastrointestinal disorders and in this you can include patients who have these motility syndromes, intestinal pseudostruction syndromes, or in fact, patients with mitochondrial disorders who have motility problems. And the facts about intestinal failure is that the five-year survival rate without liver transplant is around 54 to 58%. Usually, people die of sepsis infections. If they have transplant, they might have lymphomas associated to that. And five-year survival on total parental nutrition varies according to diagnosis. Uh, it's interesting to see that patients with Crohn's disease, which is an inflammatory disorder of the gastrointestinal tract uh, in, in the category autoimmune problems, they really have a higher uh, survival rate as compared with patients with dysmotility. Patients with ischemic bowel that is mainly common, commonly seen in the adults and perhaps the equivalent in pediatrics is what we call necrotizing enterocolitis. 
and radiation enteritis and intestinal sort of obstruction, they do uh, poorly with that. So eventually, you know, these patients are patients that might go into uh, transplantation. And there is a contrast between the patients who have short bowel associated with this. Usually in pediatrics, you have uh, congenital short bowel syndromes, patients who have congenital enteritis, in other words, that there is no absorption of the nutrients, patients who have volvulus, which is an anomaly in the anatomy, and the patient, the patient has a twist of the bowels, basically, and they left with no intestine. As you probably all know, you can live without your colon, or you can live without your small intestine. Uh, in adults, the main reason for that will be ischemic bowel disease. You have also Crohn's that can produce short bowel, and certainly it's a little bit different than in the pediatric population. If you see the contrast between the numbers of patients with intestinal failure, short bowel syndrome, usually are atricious. Atricious means the lack of when the small bowel is not well developed. You can have gastroschisis when you're born with all your gastrointestinal organs out of the abdomen. So those are the things that cause that, but the, the focus is perhaps in the patient with dysmotility. You might have all the anatomy correct, but the neuroenteric apparatus, which is basically the muscles and the nerves that carry the nutrients through the gastrointestinal tract from the mouth to the anus, don't work well, and that doesn't allow for the patient to survive. And those are patients that might develop TPN dependency. You can live with TPN for a while, but the, re the reason in pediatrics that we try to avoid as much as we can make somebody TPN dependent is that the mortality or those patients is associated with the lines due to the fact that they might have septic episodes, bacterial infections, or most commonly seen when the patients run out of sight to put a line. So as you see, it's probably a complicated matter, you know, when we talk about what are the best options for people who cannot eat appropriately or are in pain or discomfort. And in this situation, you know, is there a patient that is going to be dependent of TPN or can survive with some type of enteral support? And what I say enteral support, we're talking about feelings with gastrostomies or jejunostomies. So... You can see then that these patients might be difficult to treat and be difficult to follow, and it's not magic pills in order to improve the situation. And intestinal transplantation is not readily available for everybody, but obviously it's an, it's an option. So switching gears a little bit, we're going to talk about what Munchausen is and then try to make the interface. In the new uh, classification Munchausen, uh, is, as I mentioned, called factitious disorder by proxy. Um, but Munchausen is the name of a baron called Baron Carl Frederick Munchausen. This was a German mercenary who entertained guests with apocalyptical and fantastic stories. And he basically talked about lies and things that happened there. But the definition that we uh, had, and that's what they pick up this young fellow back in, in 19... Um, uh, 51, when was described the syndrome by Asher, this is a form of child maltreatment and malignant disorder of parenting in which an adult falsifies signs or symptoms in a victim, causing that victim to be regarded as ill or impaired. The components of this condition include victimization of the child, and there is a psychopathology of the abuse, or terms that is being used in the literature that you can um, Fine is pediatric condition, illness, falsification, 
They could be exaggeration of symptoms. They can fabricate symptoms, simulation, induction of symptoms. For instance, people who give certain drugs that produce symptoms like nausea, retching, or diarrhea. And most frequent reported by caregivers who falsify are GI. So the gastroenterologists uh, in the first place are very much involved with this type of cases. And the second group of specialists are neurologists. So what are the signs of pediatric illness falsification? Well, there is recurrent illnesses that appear unusual. And there's something that people might not be familiar, but it's not a common uh, finding. Second is unexpected symptoms occurrence, you know, when those symptoms happen. Third is the lack of continuity of care and multiple serial providers. Uh, it's hard to identify sometimes who is in charge of the, who is running the show here. And there is no, no doctor that really takes charge of that. And that is a characteristic sometimes that facilitate for these people who indeed have this disorder to proceed and continue to have this uh, condition. There are inconsistencies also, uh, false reports. There is no record documentation. There is nothing that has been proven. And as you see, the manifestation of Munchausen by proxy in the pediatric GI is pretty uh, wide. Uh, usually involves most of the stuff that we see as gastroenterologists. You can have chronic diarrhea. You can be failure to try, vomiting, abdominal pain, gastric erosions, uh, rectal bleeding, constipation, and in that list, obviously, is mitochondrial disorder as well, given the fact that it's such a, a complicated illness. In my experience, uh, now almost 30 years doing pediatric gastroenterologists, I have assessed around 1,500 patients for motility problems, and I really have had documentations in my practice of four patients. One patient was presented with this motility with multiple line septic episodes, which always is suspicious to me that there is something going on with the patient and it's not a real illness. Second was feeding intolerance. Second patient with had a gastrostomy, jejunostomy, multiple lines, had a fundoplication, gastrostomy, retching episode, and pseudo seizures. And once there was uh, documented that, the patient was separated from the family and uh, successfully went off of the central line. And the, th- and, the th- and the fourth case was a case of uh, Ipecac. As you know, P- Ipecac is an, uh, is, is an antidote that you use for people who have poison but makes you vomit. So the features that differentiate pediatric conditions, falsification disorder with intestinal pseudostruction or dysmotility. Pseudostruction syndrome is basically the uh, generic term to identify people with dysmotility. And mixed pseudo means that there is not a mechanical obstruction, and there is just um, the presence of uh, abnormal motility, nerve, or muscle damage. So the things that distinguish that is the daily abdominal pain is usually not seen. There are multi-system disease. When there are too many organs, it's concerning about that. Accelerating trajectory. In other words, the patient gets worse and worse and worse instead of improving. They were repro- they reported preterm birth. There is dilated bowel, abnormal manometry. All those are significant to identify a motility. In other words, if you have a normal motility disorder, it's almost impossible that a normal motility studies is almost impossible to have a dysmotility syndrome. And these uh, warning signs are the following: you have patients who have symptoms occurring in caregivers' presence only. 
the caregiver medically knowledgeable. They, they know a lot. Of, they have a lot of knowledge about the conditions, and there are multiple consultations to experts, not just a second opinion. I mean, these are people who shops around for a long time, and they usually have excellent socialization with medical and nursing staff. They have team and doctor splitting. In other words, they have doctors such and such told me this one, but the other doctors say different things. And the fire in general is absentee, is not in the picture, or is very, very much less involved as compared with the mother. And the patients tend to be hospitalized in different institutions, not in one institution. And there is always an opposition to de-escalate medical care. In other words, if you try to get rid of the line or you can try to do enteral nutrition, there is blockage from the parents to do that or the caregiver. That can present also to the surgeons. and You have to be careful sometimes with our interpretation of um, gastrointestinal motility studies because patients can have minimal findings in the motility. So that's why you need really an expert to do the motility studies with seasoned clinician that has a lot of years of experience and can um, interpret those adequately. Uh, the concerns about the diagnosis, when you make the diagnosis, is that sometimes when people is accused of illness fabrication, it might be because the doctor doesn't take a good history. The mom or the mom or the caregiver might be anxious, so misrepresent themselves. Then the the accusation also can be associated with repeated visits to doctors, doctor shopping, and it could be a real illness, and the doctor might not know or be familiar with this. The perpetrator denies causing illness, and in fact, the perpetrator might be innocent. And the physician blackmailed the patient and said, you know, if you don't do that, I'm not going to do this. So that is always tricky, you know, how you do that. And the illness clearance with separation, there are patient, the patients that have certain conditions that might be intermittent in nature. And also the anxiety of the mother might feed into the child's uh, um, illness. So there are conditions that they are pathological, but not necessarily being munchausen by proxy or a factitious disorder by proxy. In other words, you can have somebody who really has child abuse is doing that to the child. Second, it could be failure to try due to neglect. Third, if the patients are very over-anxious or more with delusional disorders or hysterical personality profile. So I think you have to keep on in mind that. Anne Recklin is a PhD who wrote a, an article uh, about, and still not impressed, is trying to see if publication, but I think she made some points and some maybe we can discuss that in the future about why is that the patients diagnosed with mitochondrial diseases are more vulnerable for the accusation of falsification disorder. So the criteria when we make the diagnosis of this condition is number one, intentional production of finding of physical or psychological signs or symptoms in another person who is under the individual care. Second is the motivation for the perpetrator's behavior is to assure the sick role by proxy. The perpetration of continuing to be sick, enjoy the milieu of the disease with this, and the behavior is not better accounted for another mental disorder. I think it's important to pay attention also the parents' desire to consult for the child's symptoms. I think there is a normal range of people who is really appropriately concerned about what is going on with the parent, and also the people who really has uh, the other spectrum, they see that really having um, 
over vigilance and uh, uh, premeditating inv inventing symptoms of the patient. And I think I think that is important also to remember that you can trust the patient, and it's very difficult for the physician not to do that, because as the Hippocratic oath for us, Hippocratic oath that we take when we become doctors, we also should be allies of the patient. But you know you can be in this situation in which you might not trust this, and that's why Ronald Reagan was uh, ready to do that when he met with Gorbachev many years ago. He says, trust, but verify. So I'm going to skip the uh, case scenario there is there, and uh, just briefly mention the, some of the management issues, you know. Uh, and I think when you think about the patient with presumptive diagnosis of intestinal failure due to motility, congenital anomalies, or due to um, volvulus, et cetera, I think you have to have certain uh, organization as a physician. Uh, number one, you have to be compulsive attention to minute detail, verifying prior medical records, procedures, and surgical interventions. And that's so crucial, you know, for us doctors to look very carefully on that and see if everything is being documented. Um, laboratory tests, biopsies, endoscopies, motility, and not just um, listen to the story without seeing those. That's what I mean by verification. Second, you have to have a team approach. The doctor is one in the team. You have to have nurses that are involved with this. Uh, might have a child protection team, social workers, psychiatry, psychology experts, and nutritionists should be involved, and physical therapy. And sometimes if it's necessary, you have to legal team to verify uh, these matters. The hospitals, unfortunately, are not the best place for that because there might be changes that then might not happen there. But the hospital admission for evaluation, there has been also issues with covered videotaping, but now with the new HIFA regulation, that's very difficult to do. And eventually, unfortunately, what happened with this type of uh, cases is that separation might make the, the final difference. I mean, the patient's symptoms go away when the patient is not with the caregiver. Certainly, that is confirmatory that there has been a falsification disorder. It's important to remember the falsification disorder might not necessarily be the only problem. The only other issue or the other entity that you come to think about is what we call overcompliance. This is the typical case in which the patient indeed has a medical condition, but the parents live or the caregivers live out of that, i.e. by funding, by you know enjoying the milieu with the, all the hospitals staying. Um, sometimes they have nursing at home, etc. You know, and it can become a monetary thing. So again, that could be an also fabrication, and this is called over compliance. Indeed, the patient have the condition, but they enjoy all that. So I think that's for the physician and the team to sort out uh, which direction you have to investigate that. So I think that gives you an idea where I'm coming from, you know, and I think, uh, uh, Christy, I will be happy to be open, you know, so we can discuss uh, some specifics. We'll be happy to uh, proceed in that fashion. Okay. That sounds very good, Dr. Flores. And, uh, and one of your case studies that you included in your slides is a um, is a – child who is now an adult who has mitochondrial disease, I asked permission of the mom to use her as an example 
and she said that that was okay. I think it it would be of interest to the group if you would just touch on that particular case because I think that um, there are many people who do present that way with um, very complex GI issues that don't seem to make a lot of sense. Would you do that? Yeah, sure. This, uh, I don't want to use that, but if the parents agree with that, that's fine. You know, this you was did. a 25-year-old female with history, intestinal pseudostruction. It's a status post uh, tra- the TPN gastrostomy, and uh, now it's a successful art- artist and graf- graphic designer. She presented at age 20 months old with albinism, abdominal distension, apnea, cyanotic spell, seizures, and hypoglycemia. She was treated for G reflux, feeding intolerance, and constipation, but had persistent and relapsing episodes of pseudostruction. So at some point, a gastrostomy, a jejunostin, was placed. At age two years, the family was investigated for Munchausen by proxy in a very respectful hospital. And there is a letter there from the psychiatrist, you know, that saw this patient. Uh, cut the story short, nothing happened on that. I continued to follow the patient. At age 10 years, required TPN, jejunal feedings, but poor enteral toleration, developed vasculitis, which is an inflammation of the blood, blood vessels, pancreatitis, sleep apnea, and... Uh, IgA nephropathy, which is a change in the kidney, and gallstones. She had an abnormal jejunal motility, abnormal anthroduinal motility, and eventually, age 16, the patient underwent a muscle biopsy for the diagnosis of mitochondrial disorder complex 3, um, and the patient has been on TPN now for 15 years, and he had had just two episodes of sepsis, one candida Nicolai sepsis, which is interesting because she had those when she was in the hospitals, so at home he never had any problem. So we finally had a diagnosis with this patient, but this patient was a, a sort of a, a little bit of torture, you know, in this, in this respectable institution when um, we didn't know what's wrong with the patient. The contrast in this presentation with the patient who had Munchausen by proxy, and uh, initially this patient was a 10-year-old female with intestinal pseudostruction evaluated for bowel transplant. Presented with abdominal distension, he had abnormal changes of motility, multiple surgeries, colectomy, and eventually had a small bowel transplant. Initially, after the transplant did well, had multiple admissions, had an splenectomy, removal of the spleen, etc. And the patient eventually was identified to have Munchausen, and unfortunately, the mother refused psychiatric uh, care. That was a case reported in transplantation procedures in 1996. So. The reason I put these two cases there is there is one case who indeed was a case of Munchausen by proxy, and the other one was not. But the degree of knowledge at that level in the first case that I discussed uh, did not allow us to make the diagnosis. So unfortunately, uh, eventually was diagnosed to have the mitochondrial problem. So I think you have to see both ways, the patients who might have indeed the diagnosis. And I think my, always is my strong recommendation that when I'm going to take care of this patient, we really have to have the diagnosis before we pass judgment on that. Great. Thank you, Dr. Flores. So uh, I'm going to open the lines for discussion, and the way that this works is you just kind of virtually raise your hand and and you can ask a, a question. And, um, you know, Dr. Flores, we really appreciate you being willing to, to show both sides and to talk about the issues that face these families. So bear with me one second sure. while I unmute everyone. Okay, so everyone has an opportunity to speak now. So um, I have gotten a couple questions by email, but um, I'll give someone a chance to ask a question live first. So anyone have a question? 
Okay, so Dr. Flores, let me um, speak out against the, the question I have for email. And if anybody else has questions that they would like to email me, you can email me at director at mitoaction.org, and uh, I'll ask on your behalf. So, Dr. Flores, one of the questions is that you mentioned um, red flags and that one red flag is the idea that there's a lack of continuity with the doctors and the clinicians. Um, in, in the experience of many parents with mitochondrial disease, this is a problem, and often the parent feels that it's not their fault, that it's the medical practice that's not providing the continuity, uh, or the practice doesn't connect with other physicians so that, that there isn't a team approach. Um, in that case, then, the parents feel that they have to be the go-between and they have to learn medical jar jargon that they didn't otherwise know and they have to be the one to be reporting, if you will, between the different um, doctors. So what do you suggest then in that case? Because then it raises a red flag for that family, yet the family feels that they had no other choice. Well, that's a, that's a very good point, you know, because uh, the, the problem is that since there are not a lot of specialized centers for this, and in in New England, fortunately, we have, you know, several places that you can consult with that. My advice in general is to try to get a center that has, you know, a big name and there's people that is involved in somehow that they have metabolic unit and have a good gastroenterology uh, center, you know, where they can uh, go with that. I'm not I'm not saying that I think you have to document everything. And in fact a lot of the parents have a tremendous amount of documentation that but I, I recognize that there is a lot of ignorance in terms of this and I think that's one of the things that um, the metabolic unit at, at our place is struggling with to do that, you know, to try to train people to recognize that I think the uh, the ignorance of the physician that's one of the things that probably contributes, you know, to some of the abuses that happen with the patient, you know, that people really don't don't look into that. But I think it's going to be um, specifically with each place in the country, you know, where you are, and if you really seek the attention of a big center, that's where you have to, to go, you know. Do you have any um, general recommendations, Dr. Flores, for parents who are managing a child who has, you know, very complex and unpredictable um, you know, medical symptoms? In terms of medical care, or in, what I, I will, my first recommendation is find somebody who is interested in your child. That's number one. Number two, that they have the time to devote to you. And number three, that you have a good connection with the physician. Because if any of these are missing, you're going to have troubles. You know, you're, not going to, you're going to have one doctor one day, another doctor a different day. And uh, I think the continuity is very important in these patients. That's the only way that you can do it. During that patient, for instance, that we have with with the diagnosis of mitochondrial disorder, I mean, I've been taking care of this patient for over 20 years. So I know the family. I know exactly what's the situation there. So I think that's, I think it's going to be really good doctoring what is going to help you with those patients. Um, and, Dr. Flores, another question that I received is for families who are in an area, uh, unlike Boston, let's say, where there are not a lot of physicians who are well-versed in mitochondrial disease, then often those families go out of their way to try to educate or be an advocate for their child about the symptoms of the mitochondrial disorder. But that can be misinterpreted then as the parent over-labeling the child. Um, if you were a doctor who didn't know anything about mitochondrial disease, 
what would you what would reach you the most effectively so that you could learn about it yet feel right. that you were could trust the patient? Well, I I think I think the places like uh, I won't mess up your your system. What's that? Guys, just just so you know, we can hear you, so please be careful not to speak up because everyone is not on mute right now. Thanks. Okay, so go ahead, Dr. Flores. So, so you go, go in that, I think obviously you have to see, I mean, the the fact that there are uh, organizations like uh, Mito Action, you know, uh, and out there that they can, you know, provide information, the basic concepts, I think they will steer these uh, folks into the right direction and give uh, the name of experts around the country that they can verify or discuss the issues with the parents and inform the doctor. You know, I will try to get involved with the pediatrician. I think the pediatrician is always a great advocate, you know, that he might be dealing with the daily problems. So if you can recruit your pediatrician and get interested and talk to one of the doctors, I think that makes a big difference. That's my my idea, you know. Um, once you do that, you know, at, uh, either by teleconferences, uh, Grand rounds, etc. Teaching, you try to teach people that indeed these conditions are real. But I think my advice in general is try to recruit your pediatrician, your primary care doctor, you know, so they can discuss these issues with uh, physicians that are very, very much interested and they're experts in the field. Yeah. I I agree with that, and I guess I'll just add my two cents as well is that um, I think that part of the reason why we really pushed to put the clinician's symptom guide online was so that um, patients and parents could just direct their doctor to that resource without having to muddle through the information themselves. And if you can get your doctor to actually go online, it's free, there's a table of contents, it's, it's easy to organize and navigate, to look at, then you're not the one who's deciding what your child's diagnosis is, then you're involving your doctor in that um, approach. And on that note, we have cards that are, you know, that have the table of contents on one side and kind of the information on how to get to the clinician's guide online that we'll happily mail you and you can give them to your team or to your primary care doctor and you just need to let us know that you'd like that by sending us an email. The other thing that I would say is I agree also, Dr. Flores, that there's sometimes a component of just talking about what the disease is and and I have written letters for patients. Even if I don't know the patient very well, I can't talk about what your symptoms are because I'm not your healthcare provider, but I can talk about the fact, which is that these are common symptoms of mitochondrial disease and that it is often misunderstood and that symptoms may fluctuate based on a variety of conditions or factors. And sometimes having um, external advocates like that help to be able to clarify. I think that the team concept is really important. I I absolutely think. And the problem is that, you know, the... This uh, the area, uh, the field of mitochondrial disorder still is a baby field. I remember when we started, you know, maybe 20 years ago, the field of uh, gastrointestinal motility with Dr. Hyman, Dr. DiLorenzo, myself. You know, uh, people didn't know what it is. And now it's like a common thing, you know, people think like that. The problem that we have with this type of diseases that the NIH call orphan diseases is that there is not a lot of specialized centers. And I recognize the family's frustration not to find somebody interested. Even us here in Boston with all the fantastic medical care we have, you call somebody to do a motility test, they say they'll see you in December. 
you know so i i think i am very much aware and the same happened in the metabolic field which is even worse so uh, it's difficult but i think uh, their efforts done i think organizations like Mito Action has make a big, big difference, you know, and the fact that it's convenient to do that. I think most of the people that work or are familiar with mitochondrial disorders, uh, these motility syndromes, I think they're pretty accessible, uh, really nice people that they're in the field. And the problem is that we don't have the promptness that, that, that usually uh, these patients and families deserve. So I understand the frustration, you know, uh, with this type of situation. Christy? Could I ask the doctor a question? Go ahead. Um, Do you have any advice as to how, like, I'm a little emotional, but you have, I have one son who's perfectly fine, and then another son who's had 20 surgeries. I'm sorry. And is there any advice as to how, like, you're scared to death, and of course you're anxious. But how do you convey that to doctors that you're not, I'm sorry, you're not, um, you know, there's nothing psychologically wrong with you, but then he'll have one test, it's fine, two months later they do the same test, it's abnormal, he's in for surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, he's had upwards of 20 surgical procedures, and it's just frustrating <laughs> as a parent um, I've not been accused. I've not been. <laughs> um, there's been no accusations. They see the stuff eventually. So I think I do have a good, pretty good working relationship with with his doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm literally 20 minutes outside of Boston, um, which actually trying to get into Dr. Corson now, and like you just spoke about the long wait. But do you have any advice as to a better way to maybe convey? to them sometimes because what happens, what I found has happened with my son is as a parent, you have an instinct and you know it's something, but you like, I'm not a doctor. I don't know what to ask them, but right. I just know that we're going to end up there. And rather than go through all the tests and him getting sick and taking the ambulance ride, is there any way to expedite this? What advice do you have for parents when you know it's some like he's always ended up with Whatever they say, it's. but then we still have to go through the steps of this, this, and this. And he gets sicker and sicker and sicker. And then, you know, he has a G and a J tube. With the G tube, he would just retch and retch and retch. He blew through right, three right. fundos. Right. And, what? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and some people do think, <clears throat> you know, so what's your advice? Well, you know, obviously, I think that you said in the beginning of your conversation, I recognize that it's been tough for you, is the fact that you really have to get a strong connection with the doctors, you know. Remember that doctoring is not just to cure or fix somebody. You have to be there for the good times and the bad times. And there are patients that, unfortunately, they run out of options, you know. And then the doctors get frustrated too. So don't think that doctors are human too, you know. Right. In the area of motility, it's very, very difficult because, you know, what happened is that in the last 10 years, we have had more drugs taken out of the market than any other field, you know. So when you say what medication you need, we're very good in making the diagnosis. But the, the, there are therapeutic interventions, the drugs that we can use to treat those patients, they are not there. You follow me? Yeah, because so, he, he doesn't respond well correct. to any of that. So, so, you, so, <laughs> so then you said, well, what else do we do for the patient, you know? I think 
that the patient has had multiple surgeries and all that, the best alliance that you have is with your doctor, you know. If you don't have that alliance with your doctor, it's time to, to look elsewhere, you know, because yeah. they have to be with you. I mean, uh, everybody's a good doctor with the easy patient. You follow me? Yeah. <laughs> it's the tough patient that, you know, one. that need the help. Is the, That's the one you should show your colors. And if you don't have that, you know, it's time to change. That's not the place to go. I mean, yeah. but don't expect the, the magic bullet, you know, because these problems are very, very difficult. But when you have a difficult time, it's better to be with a friendly foe than with not somebody who's not friendly, you know. Yeah. And you're going to be questioned everything that you do or you tell everything. That would be extremely frustrating. You know, you need somebody who's on board with you, even though you know that, and he's trying. And, and this is the confidence that you have in your doctor. You know, the doctor, be sure that the doctor is well-trained. Be sure that the doctor is updated. Be sure that your doctor is up in there in, uh, up in, there in the field and is familiar what is the new last thing that you need. You follow me? Mm-hmm. And those things, I think, will help you. And, you know, a doctor, if you, somebody, you come with something you read in, uh, I don't know, in Cosmopolitan or Vanity Fair, something you show, and the doctor, listen, I have learned a lot from my patient the last 30 years, you know, sometimes things that they, they had ideas about it. You follow me? So yeah. a doctor that is capable and is uh, secure what he is, he will not be upset with any of those things. So if you don't have that, then you might have a problem, you know? Yeah, I mean, his doctors are the ones that brought up the mitochondrial disease, but he also has multiple congenital anomalies. Yes. So he didn't fit any of the profiles. Yeah. Um, well, you need to be... Initially. <laughs> well, you know, in, in each condition, remember... <laughs> It, it, not everybody is going to be fixed, uh, feeding the internet profile of a condition, you know. That's why you need to have somebody seasoned with experience and that has seen a lot, you know, in this. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Flores. My I pleasure. Have, I have two other um, questions that have come in, so uh-huh. let me ask the first one. Uh, the parent asks, it seems that children who seem normal on the outside, so based on their outward ex- appearance, are questioned much more often than a child who has obvious and profound delays, and especially when those delays are cognitive. Even if children have identical other problems, GI problems and so forth, that the child who is not cognitively delayed tends to be at risk um, more often. And do do you believe that those families with cognitively normal children are at higher risk, and have you experienced that in your practice as well? Oh, sure. You know, it's the same thing I see in a patient with Crohn's disease that is uh, that is not not slim. I, I hate to use that example, but I always say people, do you think Thomas Menino, the mayor of Boston, does have Crohn's disease? And you say, no, he's a heavy guy, right? He has Crohn's disease. I, I say it in, in this conference because it's public knowledge. But, you know, that's the type of picture that you see. Sometimes the child might look okay. He might be on TPN, might be on gastrostomy. And I learned years ago, you know, that that might not be might be the reality. You know, all you have to do is pick up the shirt, and you will see in a central line, you will see a G-tube. So the physical appearance it might not be the best thing for you sometimes. You know, it's good that you look like good like that. I'm happy for that. But, you know... You always worry that that people might not be more alert, you know, in those patients. So definitely, they are more a target, you know, for people to say, "Oh, no, there's nothing wrong with you." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, and I think that's where our efforts to try to raise awareness and bring up the concept about how mitochondrial disease can be an invisible disorder, and and to help educate folks about what's going on on the inside. Um, we hope over time <coughs> makes an impact. 
Yep. Um, okay, and then I had another question from another um, member. They said that she says, my husband and I were watched and questioned um, for Munchausen by proxy 20 years ago with their daughter, and finally she was diagnosed with me loss at the age of mm. seven years old. Mm. But today she's still very frightened, and it's really made an impact that's lasted with her all these years. Um, do you have any advice to her, the patient who now who was a child and now is is getting through this, to help uh, her? I, I will just say the message to this person is be grateful to your parents that they stuck with you and they were able to follow through and stick with, with the feeling that they had, you know, there was something wrong with you. And uh, move on, don't think, don't get angry, because that's not going to help you. But, you know, that, I think, is the way I say, be thankful for those parents that you have. Thank you. Christy? Uh, yes. Hi, this is Dr. McCarter. I'm a pediatrician listening in. Um, I've actually had two patients in the past who did have documented mitochondrial disorder, and it was actually not that difficult because their symptoms could be verified by various caretakers over time. The issue that I've run into lately with a case is that the only symptoms can be documented by the parent and not by anyone else. No independent caretakers or observers have been able to document any of the symptoms over a period of about a year. Um, and there are many other reasons, too, that we have concerns about Munchausen's. And I, I guess my concern is short of, and Dr. Flores, maybe you can uh, address this, short of separating the parent from the child, uh, not as a, a punishment to the parent, but as an effort to really do the best thing for the child in order to make the diagnosis one way or the other. You know, Short of that, what else can we do? Because no one wants to separate a parent and child. However, sometimes that is the only way to prove or disprove it, I think, especially when you haven't been able to document it by other uh, adults that are responsible that are in the home. Well, you know, the answer of that is you're 100% right. You have to separate those parents. And if, if the parents disagree very, very vehemently about that, I think there is a problem. In my experience, in the last 30 years, when I have requested for parents to do that, the parents who had nothing to do or nothing to fear, they have no problem with a brief separation, you know. So I think you really have obligated to follow and verify that, you know. You can't just assume that is is the, 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 the child is too valuable, you know, and too precious not to do that. And you own that as a physician to be sure that, that you really know the, what's going on. How long of a separation well, sometimes would you, you know, admit it, you know, three to five days, you know. Sometimes they come in the hospital, you know, and we watch them, you know, and see. And I ask the parents, this is you're straightforward, you know. If they bolt and say, you know, listen, we're not interested in that, I think there is a problem. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Dr. Flores, this is Christy. I guess I would just add to um, Dr. McCarter, who I appreciate you you listening to this, is that what happens, I think, is that it, it's, if it's not handled in a way that really includes the parents as being part of the team and is handled rather in a very accusatory way, it can be very traumatic for the family. And in many cases, the family is already hanging on by a thread just due to the stress of the child's condition, not to mention the stress if there's any investigation that's being brought up. 
because it's so difficult to understand or even to make sense as a parent of the symptoms that are challenging our children's health, and there is a fear in the heart of every parent who has a child with mitochondrial disease that their child is going to die because that's what they're told when they have the diagnosis and they've seen their children teeter too close to the edge. So it's not uncommon for families to be emotionally unable to really prioritize or separate or remain calm when they see their children start to unravel, if you will, medically. And so I think that in the case where you are concerned, you still, I hope, have a responsibility to remain the advocate of the child by being respectful and concerned for the whole family and by handling that in a way that is as sensitive as possible because your goal is then to determine that the child continues to have these symptoms even when they're not in the presence of the parents. It's not to traumatize the whole family. The other part of that that I would say is that it is important to make sure that the people who are in the home understand what symptoms look like in the child with mitochondrial disease. So, for example, the parent may be saying, my child is weak, they're so fatigued, and and we hear fatigue as a nurse, and you go, oh, well, you should look sleepy. But in the child with mitochondrial disease, fatigue does not necessarily equal, I put my head down, I laid down to go to sleep. Fatigue for some children means that they get anxious and irritable and they actually have behavioral issues because they can't compensate for the lack of control that they have as they are Mm -hmm. unable to have more energy to be able to basically control themselves and their emotions. And so fatigue looks different in different children. And I think that's just some basic education about mitochondrial disease and the symptoms Stepping back and looking at the idea that the whole body is affected by this low battery, if you will, doesn't necessarily mean the child is sleepy, may mean that the child has symptoms that are as direct result of that lack of energy. And understanding that for people who, if you have a, a CNA working in the home, perhaps they don't have the degree of experience that you do to be able to tease out those symptoms. So it's important that you, I think, have done due diligence to make sure that the symptoms are being reported accurately or interpreted accurately by both sides. And Christy, this is Julie. I'd like to just piggyback on that comment um, for the physician. Um, I was unfortunately one of those parents, and my school system accused me of Munchausen syndrome. Um, And my daughter has eosinophilic esophagitis and gastroparesis, and then was referred on for evaluation for mitochondrial disease, and we're still kind of in the midst of that, but at that point, at this point, that's what's presumed. And some of the symptoms she had, obviously, you know, the abdominal distension, and she would regurgitate food um, many, many times a day. And the school system said that she never does that at school. And I said, well, you just, you don't understand because she does it very, it's very subtle. And they said, no, we would know if she did it. and through you know the investigation obviously is very traumatic but it was resolved very quickly because she clearly did have the problems um but then she had an impedance probe done um to document how many times a day she was regurgitating food and i actually took her to school with the impedance probe to let them know 
yes, she does do this at school, you don't recognize it. It's not just at home with her crazy mother. Um, and it was 133 times, and not one of those was recognized by multiple school personnel. So I think it is important that when people are saying these symptoms don't exist outside the presence of the mother, that they really do have an understanding of what those symptoms look like and what they're looking for. This is Ann Reckley, and I joined you guys a little bit late, but um, I just wanted to make a comment. I'm a child psychologist as well as a mother of a child with mitochondrial disease, and I had worked in the field of child abuse um, for a number of years in my training. And one of the concerns I have about the whole issue of separation is what what is happening psychologically to these kids when they're separated from their parent. Is there any kind of effort to maintain that relationship because if it is a false investigation or a, a non-supported investigation the person is not committing munchausen's by proxy what happens to that kid's sense of security and sense of self my sense is you're probably going to end up with a very anxious child afterward a child with separation issues as well as traumatized parents so i i hope that that over the years we can figure out different ways and to try to find out these answers. My child was not even separated, but I had adopted her from foster care. So when the social workers came and showed up to investigate, um, you know, I can't tell you it's been two years, and she's still afraid to go to school because she's afraid they're going to try to get her taken away again. Um, and she wasn't even separated. I mean, the, the issue, you know, I had all the documentation. I'm also a nurse. And so I had the documentation. Um, but to the school system, I look like the perfect Munchausen candidate because I'm a nurse, because I have medical knowledge, um, because, you know, we had been to specialists at the Cleveland Clinic. Well, we live in, a, you know, a half hour from there, so of course we're there. Um, but she still is traumatized in terms of, you know, can I go to school safely and these people aren't going to try to take me away. I think I think I, I I read what you folks are saying, but I think that's what I feel very strong to have an advocate. You know, you have a physician that knows you, and you respect, and you have a connection with him. You know, because that I mean, I'm, I I consider myself the first defender for my patients. You know, and uh, part of defending that those patients are to protect that integrity of the family and be sure they're not get abused by the system. Look at that patient that I have for 20 years, 25 years. And this patient was accused, I didn't have time to go through that letter, but it was a letter that it was so offensive, you know, for the family. And this, this mother, with all the credit that I give her to the years, she hung in there, you know, and, and she was good. She, she was compliant. And what happened is that if there is no evidence of factitious disorder or Munchausen over compliance, that shows eventually. But we really have to have an ally, an ally you know, that is going to protect that, Absolutely, you know. Otherwise, you're dead on arrival. They're gonna, they're gonna railroad you. Yeah. I have a comment um, from Heidi. This is Heidi. Sometimes a child will improve and have fewer symptoms just by being in the hospital environment, where it's air conditioned. They're on bed rest. They have limited activity. They're getting fluids. They're eating appropriate food, or they're getting tube feeds. And then when the parents take the child home to a house that's hot or they're going back to school from babysitter, et cetera, it may appear that the child improves by being separated, and, in fact, it could be environmental. Any other questions or comments? Um, we've had a, a 
very good discussion. I appreciate everyone um, being willing to be um, both honest as well as sensitive about the topic. And as I said earlier, I hope it's the the beginning of um, bringing this idea into the open so that families and the doctors everywhere can communicate more effectively. Other questions or comments that you'd like to share? Just okay, thank I you. This, I just wanted to say, this is Ann Reckland again, just thank you for being able to bring this up and for everybody to be able to talk about it. And hopefully we can also maybe involve the social service system as well in the education mm -hmm. process at some point. Thank That's you, it. Anne. Um, any, anybody else have any other questions or comments? And Dr. Flores, do you have any? Uh, no, I just I think I think you know it's important to this topic. As I said, you know, is a, a topic that is taboo for people. You know, I think this is something that you really have to think about it. I think you have to have the the ability to consult with somebody. And I think there is a lot of people around now in the country that they're very much involved into, into looking into this and be and be realistic about the condition. So be sure you get the right person, you know, there are experts that they know about this, that they can pass judgment of that. And if, if people need that help, I think you have to go to groups of advocacy like MitoAction, like people that you pediatrician that you know, uh, you have a gastroenterologist or a metabolic doctor, you know. But I think they have to be sure that understand the limitations of the field, you know, that we still don't know everything about it. So it's hard to provide sometimes an uh, ABC diagnosis. Sometimes you have to, uh, time uh, is, is important. Uh, also, to know the families. And I think if you have that in your corner, I think you're going to be fine. I mean, just have to have a little patience. Uh, we don't know everything, unfortunately, in these conditions. Um, thank you, Dr. Flores. And okay. Well, it's been a pleasure to be with you, folks, and uh, hopefully we still can do a lot of things, to, a lot, lot to do. But I appreciate really my action with all the efforts and all the help that they provide to our patients. So, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Really, really appreciate you, thank Dr. You. Flores. Thank you so much thank on you. behalf of all the families who, over the over time, will also listen to this. Thank you so much. Okay, you have a nice afternoon. Thank you. Bye bye. So. Everyone, I'm going to um, finish the recording, and then we can stay on for additional discussion for a bit. So bear with me one moment while I end the recording. And uh, thank you so much if you are listening to this after the fact for um, taking a moment. Again, my email address is director at mitoaction.org if you have any follow-up questions.